Hi, everybody. I'm Alicia Garza. I'm the principal of the Black Futures Lab and the Black to the Future Action Fund. And I'm so excited to be moderating this panel with a crew of incredible philanthropic leaders. Let me just talk a little bit about what we're going to get into today. So the topic of this conversation is crisis, opportunity, and transformation, the role of philanthropy in movements for racial justice. What we know is that communities of color and immigrant communities are at the intersection of multiple crises, a global pandemic, a deep economic recession, a social uprising in response to police and state violence, a deepening climate crisis, a crisis in our democracy, you name it, we are in the mix of all the things. And each of these crises has been exacerbated by the failures of our political leaders and business leaders to make the kinds of choices in service of social well-being, economic stability, and of course, racial justice. Welcome to a conversation with leaders in philanthropy, including my friend, uh, Carmen Rojas, Dr. Carmen Rojas, who is the president and CEO of Marguerite Casey Foundation, of which I am a proud grantee, Dimple Abichandani, who is the executive director of the General Service Foundation, of which we are also a proud grantee, and Nicole Mayer, who is president and CEO of Group Health Foundation. We're about to get into it. So if you've got questions, go ahead and stick them in the Q&A box and we will try and do our best to either weave it into the discussion or to answer them afterwards. Also make sure to follow these leaders on social media. And throughout the conversation, we will make sure that you know what their Instagram and Twitter handles are. So let's go ahead and kick off the conversation. Let's start with my friend, Dr. Rojas. <laughs> so Carmen, you recently became the leader of a national foundation. And as I understand it, you are the second Latina to run a foundation of this size. This is amazing. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the first steps that you took in your role as president and CEO of the Marguerite Casey Foundation to help support black, indigenous, and people of color-led organizing? And what do these kinds of steps mean for the sector? What can they teach us about what philanthropy should be doing right now? Yeah, um, I love seeing your face, Alicia. And so, hi, hi, everybody. Um, thank you so much for moderating this conversation. I'm so excited to spend this time with you, with Nicole, with Dimple, really trying to find the edges uh, of what is possible when philanthropic leaders are aligned. So um, to your uh, opening, I became the president of Marguerite Casey Foundations in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic at a moment when working people that had once been deemed disposable uh, by our policymakers and corporate leaders, all of a sudden shifted to become um, uh, essential in our economy. And weeks before social uprisings calling for the divestment from police uh, and investment into critical things like housing, healthcare, and education. So um, I, I could not have anticipated that. <laughs> and it was true. And so in the first couple of months, um, we did a couple of things. First and foremost, we did our job. Um, we gave out money. Uh, we gave money to the majority of our grant recipients 
frankly, just to weather the storm, a number of local grassroots organizations did not have the resources to be able to prepare for what was happening. So things from moving to an office to working from home, um, giving people flexible dollars, literally all people had to do was send an email and we would get them money. The shortest turnaround I think was um, 48 hours, you would see money in uh, an account. Um, Secondly, um, as the rise of the COVID-19 started to happen, we kept seeing these headlines that were really troubling about the equalizing effect of COVID-19. And so we funded the COVID racial data tracker really to pressure states to disaggregate data by race and demonstrate the ways in which Black, Indigenous, Latinx, Asian Pacific Islanders were really being killed at inordinate rates by the failures of our political leaders. And then after the murders of George Floyd, of Tony McDade, of Breonna Taylor, we gave money to Movement for Black Lives affiliates. And it was literally our staff emailing people and saying, we have this money for you, we're going to get it to you. Um, really to be able to bolster and harness what was happening on the streets to give people um, and leaders the room and freedom to lead. Um, but you know, giving out money is the least that we can do as a foundation. For me, the most important thing we did, I think, um, is something that you just did, Alicia, which is both to name the victims and victors in this moment. I think that there's a way in which philanthropy resists talking about who has the power to make cho and the ability to make the choices um, that hold Black people back from opportunity. Um, who has the power and who has the ability to make choices um, and who frankly gains from hindering indigenous liberation. Uh, we have a resistance to calling out those people who get rich by killing migrants in this country. So as an entire staff, we spent time in the early days of the pandemic talking about the choices that our political and corporate leaders are making at this moment and really double down our institutional commitment to support organizing and social movements that are truly contesting for power by naming who has it today and who should have it in the future. Um, for me, this really laid the groundwork in expanding the aperture of what our team actually believed was possible and what we were working towards, which is not maintaining a status quo, but truly shifting who gets to set the norms in our democracy and our economy. That was pretty powerful, Carmen. Thank you for your leadership. And if you want to learn more about what the Marguerite Casey Foundation is up to and how it is that they are doing their work, go ahead and follow them at Casey Grants. That's right, at Casey Grants. I want to dive into this question of indigenous communities. And um, in particular, I think that there's a way in which we have seen in this movement moment a convergence of the various movements and communities that have been left out and left behind. Um, Nicole, you know, the philanthropic sector, as you know, um, as a whole needs to better fund people of color-led organizing and organizations to help shift the balance of power towards those communities who have long been denied that kind of power. 
You were once the executive director of the Native Youth and Family Center. So can you also talk about and share what the landscape looks like between foundations and indigenous communities, indigenous leaders, and then also social movements? Yeah, thanks for that. Um, you've invited me to talk about just one of the first loves of my life, which was my time at Nea Family Center. So I had this incredible privilege as a very, very young executive director to go and work at what was once a very small youth-centered organization and be there for a little over 11 years and to be with this community who had been completely excluded and left out from philanthropic and public resources in a community that's the ninth largest native community in the United States, which is the Portland metropolitan region. And to be part of that community and to see firsthand how every single outcome that our larger community said they wanted to change, if it was education or foster care or voting, statistically the fastest and most important way to do that in that region was to explicitly fund black, native, Latino, Pacific Islander, and Asian communities to do that. And yet we lived in this community that repeatedly, despite all of the data one could ever ask for, made choices every time to not do that. And that was certainly true for Nea and the native community of Portland. And so I was really raised by that organization and the elders in that community to really understand that no one was actually gonna come and rescue us. Philanthropy wasn't gonna rescue us. Our county government wasn't gonna rescue us. And if we wanted something different, we needed to nurture and grow and support many different kinds of leaders. And we not only had to have a vision and a narrative for the kind of future we wanted for ourselves, um, we learned the hard way that we actually had to demand it. Making an intellectual case, um, creating the moral picture about why this was right, even explaining that all of our futures were interdependent, never seemed to get the job done. We had to organize, hold our elected officials accountable, and frankly, hold philanthropy accountable. And so I actually came to philanthropy by, as an advocate and really had the privilege to work with many different um, Native CEOs of Native nonprofits and also a large coalition of other people of color-led organizations to really understand that not only in the Pacific Northwest is much of philanthropy derived from extracting resources from native lands, uh, but that in the Pacific Northwest, it's much like the rest of the United States where um, less than 2% of all philanthropic dollars goes to native people, causes. And of that tiny, tiny percentage, actually more than half of that goes to white-led institutions um, to do research on us or create museum displays about us. And so um, I'm pretty good at math, but those fractions are hard to do. And the unfortunate news is that actually in the last 10 years, grant making and actual dollars to native people has um, decreased. And if you factor in inflation, um, it's decreased even more. And so it's been really interesting for me as someone who came up in such a strong, profound Native community to then go into philanthropy and to see that we actually as a sector have not gotten better. Checks are not being written in larger amounts. The percentages have not increased. And yet our field 
um, continues to um, talk about us, name us, and um, not participate in different behaviors. And so the landscape is challenging right now. Um, and at the same time, that vision and that story of Nea that I shared, there are native leaders in every corner of the state I live in doing profound and beautiful work. And that's true for every corner of this country. And so I will certainly say philanthropy absolutely needs to get it together. And I have absolute optimism because of the leadership I see happening um, all across this country. Uh, so grateful for you, Nicole, and so glad that you are now at the helm of a foundation that is now distributing resources the way that it should be. You'll excuse my ring in the background. Things happen. Okay. <laughs> so I want to talk about what it means to do it right. And Nicole, a lot of your comments really resonated with me as a grantee, where we would constantly be banging our heads up against a wall because, you know, the way that philanthropy is structured so often, we're not actually able to go deep in our work because philanthropy, we've said at times, has been fickle friends. We jump from issue to issue, from cause to cause, without really investing long-term in leaders like we plan to win. So Dimple, I wanna ask you, because in 2017, the General Service Foundation actually transitioned away from funding single issue advocacy and towards supporting cross issue and intersectional efforts that help to bolster power building and frankly, that increase our ability to get closer to victory. I think we've seen the impact, right, of approaches like this in this moment where we've seen a confluence and a convergence of movements coming together. And I can only hope, right, that some of that is about the shifting, as slow as it may have been <laughs> inside of the philanthropic sector, um, to really help support that kind of growth. So can you talk to us a little bit more about how these strategies work? to help shift the balance of power? Because I still think there are some folks in this sector that don't believe that um, funding in that way is accountable enough. So can you, can you help us break yeah. that down? Yeah, thank you. It's so great to be a part of this conversation. Um, you know, I, from my time in philanthropy, I have always found that the truly transformative power of our grants, of our resources, of our support, comes in the how of it. Um, and our journey at General Service Foundation to go from being kind of a social justice issue-based funder um, to now having one portfolio that we call Building Voice and Power, um, that journey is about two things. It was about getting really clear about our values as an institution and then operationalizing those values. Um, and it was about the power of listening to our brilliant grantees. Um, so on the values piece, we in 2016 went through a process with our board and staff of clarifying kind of what our North Star was. And in that process, we, we identified justice as our North Star. And we got very clear that we understood justice to really be intersectional in the ways that human beings live it, right? That racial, gender, economic justice 
live in people and in communities and that it doesn't make sense to kind of parse them out and create these sort of boxes and say, well, you fit into one and not the other. Um, the other thing that we got really clear about is our belief that um, true transformation will come when we have leadership from those most impacted by injustice, right? And that's something that I feel like you hear a lot of foundations say. For us as a foundation, sitting with that core belief um, prompted us to ask the question of, if we believe that leadership belongs with those most impacted, then why are we the ones who are deciding what the work looks like? Why are we the ones to say this issue and not that issue, right? So that getting clear on that belief really allowed us to move through an important change. Um, the listening piece is super important and I think we just don't do enough of it in our sector. Um, and I wanna lift up two questions that really sort of sit with me all these years later. One was we asked our grantees, when you are talking to your people, your non-philanthropy people, not funders, but when you're talking to your family, when you're talking to your community, your base, how do you describe your work? And across our civic engagement work, across our reproductive justice work, across our, um, uh, you know, all economic justice work, we heard the same thing. We talk about building power. And so we not only listened to that, but we, but we affirmed it. Like, yeah, that, that actually, at the, that is the heart of the heart of how we change realities, right? And, and so we listened, we learned, and we, we sort of changed ourselves to put that at the center. Um, you know, the other question was, I remember this conversation with um, the, the ED at that time of the LA Black Workers Center. And, you know, they were a core economic justice grantee. And I remember asking Lola, you know, we're thinking about moving to sort of a more integrated intersectional portfolio. If we did that, what would it mean? If we continued to fund you, but we did it in this way, what would it mean to you? And she came back with two things. She said, um, if you did that, it would allow us to show up in the wholeness of our work. I, if you did that, I could show you all of us. Um, and, and then she said, you know, I could come to you, not just talking about the incredible work that we're doing on economic justice, but I could tell you about this exciting work we're doing on climate justice. And we have been funding them for years and no one on my team, myself included, knew that they were working on climate justice, right? Um, and it was such a, a kind of moment of realizing that there was something in the way that we were structuring ourselves that was not allowing for the wholeness and the powerfulness of our grantees. Um, and so we shifted. And so I think the important thing that I wanna point out is, you know, this shift about kind of how we structure ourselves is in and of itself about shifting who has the power. Because we're basically saying the right place for the power of deciding what you work on and how you work on it, that sits within community. That doesn't sit around like the board of, of a foundation. And so um, we, yeah, that, that, I think that's really important. Like our role is not to dictate um, what the work looks like, right? That it's, it's, it's actually to create 
space for and, and to resource the emergence of all this innate intelligence that is in our communities and to let that thrive and to let that come up. Excellent. Thank you, Dimple. That's 100% correct. And I have a follow-up question for you, but I'm going to circle back around for it. Um, because there are some questions coming in from the audience about, you know, how do you balance, right? Incorporating community perspective, but then also knowing that community is tapped, trying to do this work. How do you balance that? So I'm going to come back to you. But right now I want to kick it over to Carmen because I want to keep talking about this theme of shifting power. Now, Carmen, you have always been a bold thinker. You are like, blow the roof off this thing. <laughs> Let's try a different, like, what do we have to lose? Like literally things are on fire. So why do we keep doing the same old thing and expecting different results? Let's try something big. And then if it doesn't work, at least we tried, right? <laughs> um, but I want to kind of dive into what that looks like in philanthropy, because you have also been a critical voice in trying to create earthquakes inside of this sector that um, can literally open up the ground to allow new things to emerge. And this sector, as you also know, is slow to move, right? And um, it is trapped in, um, in the kind of ropes of its own making, right? Just to keep it 100%. So I'll just do a quick little bit of commentary here. Um, as the co-founder of the Black Lives Matter Global Network, I've seen this shift and also the ropes that bound philanthropy um, in a very close up way. Seven years ago, we were talking about whether or not we could move money to Black Lives Matter, right? Um, really scrutinizing the money we were moving to Black Lives Matter. And then also talking big about moving money to Black Lives Matter, but then moving pennies, right? <laughs> and making you like literally investigate the tread on the tires and what was the distance between <laughs> one tread and the other in order to get like pennies. So Carmen, I, I just wanna ask you to walk us through what are the ways that philanthropy can also meet this moment by making bolder moves? And what is holding philanthropy back? Like, let's just unearth it. I often find it's better when philanthropic leaders can talk to each other about the sector than hearing from us about what needs to shift. So let me know what you think on this. Um, and I think that that's our job, Alicia. I think that those convert we need to, uh, truly organize ourselves to be able to have the honest conversations about uh, what's been holding us back and what's truly possible. Um, I'm gonna inverse the question and start with the holding us back, the ropes that are tying, the hems, the sem, the seams on the side of us that are making it hard for us to fly. Um, I think that philanthropy has become the power as opposed to be the, becoming or being the catalyst by which communities actually become more powerful. Uh, we've tried to make deals. We have a long history of trying to pay for change, of investing in movements and hoping for a return. Many of my peers are more interested in perpetuity than in doing whatever it takes to make sure that the people on our websites, on our collateral, that we parade around for our boards 
are truly dictating the conditions of power in this country. Um, I, you know, the thing that I think the three the three of us bring to this job are that we all had lives before this. Um, and uh, the thing that I remember the most was feeling like philanthropy was both my captive, but a passive audience for social movements and their leaders, right? Like I felt like I was spending so much time performing to my program officer and not enough time performing for working people, not enough time delivering for workers, not enough time um, dreaming at, like at the most fundamental level. Um, I, a specific rub for me is that as a sector, we've chosen to be governed by private sector norms and language. We throw away, throw around like the language of risk and sustainability and pragmatism, when in reality, we were built to create room for our best and brightest leaders to plant the seeds for brothers and sisters in our communities to have evidence that power can be shifted, that justice can be realized, and that freedom is real. Um, at the most foundational level, we've made that trade-off. And um, I, you know, this is a mutual admiration society, uh, and there are a million reasons that I'm happy to be in conversation with Nicole and Dimple, but high on the list is their commitment to, to expanding the aperture of what's possible, both for our institutions and for the sector that we are leading in. Um, my, my sisters on this panel stay making bold moves. That's like the, the terrain they're in. Um, and I feel like I've really benefited both from uh, our, the work that they did before I started this job uh, and from being in a depth of of a loving relationship with both Dimple and Nicole, of being able to have hard conversations, of being able to engage. And so for me, um, the things that I've learned from watching them are give out money, lots of it all the time. Uh, that the, the rules and norms of philanthropy, of the need for an evaluation or of a report, Dimple, um, I'm gonna steal a story from Dimple, so I hope you weren't planning to tell this. When Dimple started, they essentially put all the processes that they had at the foundation on, all on a wall and essentially said what was necessary and the list of things that came off of that, off of the, off of the processes and procedures and the governing rules and norms went from, I'm just gonna make up this number, but this is how it felt to me in learning this from 100 to five. You imagine if you're a leader of an organization and you go from answering 100 questions to five and not needing to fill anything out, but somebody calls you to actually have this conversation that the president of a foundation, calls you to have this conversation. Um, I think, you know, they have both demonstrated the ways that foundation leaders can stop being the audience or the target or the constituents and instead work in deep service to movement leaders. Um, both Dimple and Nicole uh, are fierce in their ability and desire to call out who's winning. And this is where, um, for me, we have really failed, you know, like we as a sector do a lot of like glad handling, glad handling and like back padding when somebody gives out $5 to some organization, but we never ask where that $5 came from, at whose expense, on whose back. Uh, and both Dimple and Nicole are fierce in their commitment to holding that true, that in a, in a terrain of losers, there are also winners, right? 
um, they fund organizing. And they, uh, I'm gonna be really specific right now because I feel like organizing right now, everybody's an organizer right now. They fund organizations and leaders working to dismantle, to reimagine, to build and create a new set of systems as opposed to those organizations and leaders that are working to make folks of color more palatable, more malleable, and more acceptable in our current political and economic systems. And I think that this, in this moment of celebrating people giving out money, that distinction is a critical distinction to be, to be made. Um, for me, the thing that I'm holding as a bold move is being ideological. Uh, and not confusing ideology with partisanship. Many of our movement leaders, Alicia Garza, has the ability and has been putting out bold and expansive ideas, dreams, realities for people in our communities so far outside of what is uh, graspable in our two-party system. And I think that we as philanthropy often uh, confuse um, this type of dreaming that calls for justice and, free and freedom as partisan, when it's just a deep desire for us to be able to resource your dreams so that you can take these dreams and make them real for folks in our communities. Listen. <laughs> Let's go hard, y'all. I often say that, um, you know, we do so much scrutinizing of these groups that are doing work with no budget. <laughs> I wish that every single organization in the movement for Black Lives and the Black Lives Matter movement more broadly had budgets like the ACLU but we don't. And that's actually why we don't have power <laughs> because we're not funding like we plan to win and like we want to ensure a win. So speaking of winning, I want to take this over to Nicole because you all are actually a different kind of structure than um, most uh, institutions. And so I'm hoping you can talk with us a little bit about how being a C4 gives you greater freedom in helping to shift the balance of power to working families. And for those who are new or who are not from a foundation or not from philanthropy, what makes Group Health Foundation different than other foundations? Yeah, thanks. And hey, Carmen, that was so beautiful in so many ways. And the love that you just gave to Dimple and I, it's, it's, it's a, just making me feel a certain kind of way. So I'm so appreciative of you on a, in a million different ways. So, um, so let me try to think about this question. Um, and it's a, it's a tricky question to answer because there are some things that we at Group Health Foundation can do because we are C4, but I wanna be so clear that there is so much that C3s, private foundations and community foundations can absolutely do. And so I'm thrilled that we're a C4 and I'll be writing thank you cards for the rest of my life to that founding group health foundation board who made us a C4, who said we explicitly want to center the people most impacted as the architect of their own solutions and the, the experts in their own lives. And they took a profound amount of resources and put it all 
as a C4 so that they could really work at the intersection of equity and systems change. And so, you know, that's it. Those are the things that belief in community and that centering of expertise and the unapologetic choice to say that everything is political and we need to stop pretending that it's not. And we need to stop pretending that we're neutral because we're not and actually use all of the tools to build the power that communities deserve in, serv in service to them. So I'm really appreciative of that. And almost all of the things that we can do at Group Health Foundation, so can C3, so can private foundations, and so can community foundations. And so many of our organizations across this country have been led to believe that they cannot organize and contend for power because philanthropy has written into grant agreements, has um, created this narrative of fear. Uh, and essentially that fear is about protecting their own coziness and their own comfort and protecting their own positionality. And so we as a sector actually need to do some reconciling, some apologizing, and we need to make amends for the misinformation that we have spread rampantly through the nonprofit sector that undermines the power that communities deserve. So that's my soapbox that I um, will be on for the rest of my life. Um, but at Group Health Foundation, because of that unique um, status that we have adopted, it really does allow us to unapologetically focus on systems change to have much greater magnitude in the amount of lobbying we can do and to explicitly engage in politics. So that's the only real difference. Our, the percentage of which we can spend is a little bit higher than other people. Listen, <laughs> I have a lot to say on this piece, but I will spare y'all because there's a ton of questions in the chat as well, which we're gonna get to. But I just wanna also thank you all for being so proactive and visionary in this, in this realm. You're right that there's so much that community foundations and C3 foundations can do. And when we talk about the ties that bind us or the ties we use to bind ourselves, right? Um, so often, right, we're scared of trying to figure out what is the right form for the function that we are trying to achieve, right? So if we wanna build power for our communities, What's the right form to distribute resources from so that it can get to where it needs to go and we're not getting in our own way? This is like my 2020 motto, y'all. Get out of your own way. There's plenty of stuff in our way without us having to be part of it. <laughs> so let me move to Dimple. And then I want to um, actually go to some of the questions in the Q&A, if that's all right, because there's some good ones. And just to lift us off, um, I want to talk about something that has been nudging at me for a little bit. So I, you know, I feel ways about, I feel like words mean things and concepts mean things. And we are in a mush pot of a bunch of words that we use wrong and we deploy them incorrectly. Um, and I'm going to say it. Yeah. Let's talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Oh. Talk about it. Okay, so I'm going to do it. I'm sorry. I'm an ethnic studies major. 
I, I feel ways, I feel ways about this. So this is a framework, a series of frameworks really, that has taken hold inside of philanthropy. And there's a lot of questions in the Q&A about, you know, how important is it for us to have a racial justice analysis at the same time that we are thinking about how we distribute resources? And it strikes me, right, that sometimes in this wide field of diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, it can kind of give us an opportunity to water down things that actually need to be sharp. And we start talking about um, peace where there's no justice, okay? And that allows us in a lot of ways to avoid the conversation about how we shift power because diversity, equity, inclusion allows everybody to almost kind of be at a neutral level, right? Like it's kind of yeah. has an underpinning of we all bleed red rather than there are some deep structural rigged rules that keep us from being able to um, be together in the right ways. So anyways, you, now you're hearing my opinion on this when I'm yeah, asking, yeah, yeah. asking you yours. Um, so this framework has taken hold and I'm wondering, do you think it's helped? Do you think it's hurt? Do you think it's both like some good, some bad? And like the nonprofit sector in general. I mean, here we are talking about funding like we plan to win. Here we are talking about converging movements and how to support that level of convergence. And then we've got these frameworks, right? That are um, very popular inside of a sector that is trying to figure out how to move money faster and better. So what do you think about all this? I mean, I, I appreciate the question. I, would, I agree with your take on it. And I guess what I would say is, um, it's not just philanthropy, but um, you know, my training is I'm, I'm trained as a lawyer. I, I feel like so many of our um, elite institutions in this country are, are having conversations about diversity and then sort of over time they've added on the equity and the inclusion. Um, so often when those conversations are happening within institutions, within sectors, what's not on the table is the structural change that needs to happen, right? So that what's, what's happening is um, like manageable change, not unmanageable change. What's happening is some kind of change around the edges will change who's here, but not, not the power that they have. Um, and so, I mean, it's the, I would say for us at GSF, like it's the reason that what we've honed in on is justice, right? And so who's around the table changes, yes. But that's not, like that doesn't change the structures, right? So um, I think, you know, I will say in this time, I would say in the last few months, um, you know, there's been so much noise in our inboxes. I think philanthropy has been particularly noisy during this time. There's been so many statements and some commitments. Um, and, you know, and, and I think it's the first moment that I feel like you've seen some institutions move beyond a diversity framework to actually talking about justice. Um, and that I think is really important. So um, I think we need to see more of that. Yeah. 
Okay, I can't get enough of this question. So I want to ask Carmen and Nicole to weigh in on this. I mean, what are we doing here, y'all? What, what, is it helping? Is it hurting? Is it a little bit of both? You know, I, I, the thing that just is so clear in my mind is the words of uh, one of our partners and grantees who in a, a session talked about, please don't take this word away from us. Please do not ruin the word equity for us. And she talked about every 10 years, communities have to go and find new language to demand justice, to demand fairness, to demand a chance at their civil rights. And then white institutions, often philanthropy, come and take those words and co-opt them and water them down and reimagine them to match what they're already doing. So we're all in philanthropy, so let's hold ourselves accountable today, which is what we do in philanthropy is we say, well, we want to look like we're doing equity. Everyone's talking about equity. I need to do some stuff to prove I'm not racist. So I'm going to do some activities. Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, I've been funding these groups forever and I really like them and they're so nice to me and I want to keep funding them. I don't want to stop doing something. Can I just like put a bunch of money into their work, give them some training so that they can like sprinkle the word equity all over their proposals and maybe rename some stuff. And then I can keep funding them and I can say they're doing equity and they can say they're doing equity. And that's how we will never reach freedom. That's how we will never arrive at justice. And so um, I'm not mad at the word diversity. I'm not mad at inclusion. I'm, I'm for those things. I've spent a long period of my life fighting for those things too, but I am fierce about equity specifically. Like I don't want anyone to take that word away from communities and I don't want us to water down what we're really talking about. And I want to keep that word center to our work and to ensure that it's real. And so part of what we've been doing a lot of at Group Health Foundation is really trying to like name and claim what we mean when we use these words so that we can hold ourselves accountable and doing an unbelievable amount of listening. It's actually never enough and it's going to be our forever work. Um, but trying to spend the time so that we're not carelessly throwing these words out and participating in the weakening of what the actual meaning is and the fact that these words need to belong to community and we need to hold ourselves accountable to really not talk about them, but actually participate in behaviors, actions, decisions, and resource allocations that actually matches what the intent is. Boom. Carmen? What's your think? What's your thinking on this? We we come out the same. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a hater on these streets, as you know, Alicia Garza. But this is something that uh, uh, I have a particular rub. You open by talking about my being uh, the second now the only Latina uh, um, president and CEO of a foundation of our size with an endowment, um, and the. I've told this story a couple times, mostly because I want to uh, speak it as honestly as possible. The number of uh, Latinx leaders who came up to me and said, we're glad it's you and not a black person was, um, it was, it was a whole lot. Uh, and there was this idea that representation was uh, the, uh, 
could be equated to um, the actual hard work of truly rep, uh, redistributing resources and power. Um, that by it being me that I would affirm Latinx lives uh, at the expense of Black lives. Um, that it being me meant that I would be able to uh, not hold the fact that it's not sort of five Black presidents of foundations that are an issue, but 95% of white presidents of foundations that is the issue, right? That um, there was a true rub. And so DEI, and it was often in a DEI context, right? So it was seen as a celebratory thing. Um, I think that uh, the problem with DEI and specifically with DEI and philanthropy in the nonprofit sector is that by the time many of us make it into these positions, we've substituted collective liberation for personal power, right? Like we are just so happy to have these jobs. I'm so happy to get this paycheck. I'm so, ha I'm so happy about all these things that I quickly forget that um, I got this job to create room for us to be free and not just for me to be free. Um, and so at Marguerite Casey Foundation, we think we're like actively in this conversation um, to move beyond, not beyond like who is represented in our institutions, in our democracy, in our economy, and actually talking about how we, to Nicole's point, uh, surrender power to communities to actually shape these institutions, to surrender power to our communities, to be able to shape our democracy and our economy. Because um, uh, our communities, their contributions, their dreams, their aspirations, uh, we know that they're gonna make us better. You know, like we know that that work is gonna be better. And so um, like Dimple and Nicole, I feel like I've reached the edge and I, maybe I'm just a little bit spicier about it because I'm, um, I'm like at, the, I'm at like at the, the tip of the spear where people are like, look, it's you, Brown Town. And I'm like, oh, no, hold on. <laughs> uh, let's, Brown let's, Town. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the thing that um, D, when we start, when we really focus on, uh, and Nicole and I have been having what I think is a really powerful conversation about anti-indigeneity in the Latino community. This is a perfect example. When we talk about DEI, that conversation rarely happens. Uh, when we talk about DEI, we don't talk about anti-blackness anti amongst Latinx folks um, because we uh, are focused on representation as opposed to shifting power. We need a whole panel just on this, literally just on this. We need to talk about this because, um, yeah, it goes deep. Um, no shade to anybody who's out here in this industry doing DEI, but just know, um, yeah, <laughs> it's having an impact and it may not be the impact that is desired or maybe it is, who knows? We'll come back to that. So I wanna dive into the questions from the audience because there are many and they are excellent. So let's spend our last like few minutes kind of chatting through some of these. We've had a couple of questions come from folk about addressing the limitations of the 5% rule. So how do we encourage foundation partners to consider that this is also a form of wealth hoarding? Mm. Um, we're also hearing in relationship to the 5% rule, 
Sorry, I'm like scrolling up and down and up and down. Um, there's a bunch in here, but people want to know, how do we deal with this? How do we make sure that yeah. inside of our institution, they know this is a barrier, right, to helping do the work in communities that we plan to do, and also one of those ties that we bind ourselves with. How do we deal could with I, it? Could I jump in on that one? Yeah. Um, so this is one that, that I've thought about a lot. Um, and, you know, we talked a little earlier, Carmen was talking about um, the kind of uh, corporate, I'm going to sort of rephrase what you said, Carmen, but like the corporate cultures that we have kind of adopted and then kind of uh, taken on within the philanthropic sector. And I think one of the places that you see that the most is with the 5% rule. So the 5% rule is um, an IRS minimum distribution. So it's like the minimum that you are supposed to spend as, as a private foundation. It is not a, a maximum. It is not even like a guidance. Um, but what's actually happened over time is that it's become kind of the default. It's become the norm. Um, and, you know, I, at, at General Service Foundation, um, one of the things when I came in as a new ED, one of the things that was most curious to me was this decision um, of how much to spend and the ways in which foundations make it. And it's a very invisible topic, right? So most people don't know that foundations have a spending policy um, that basically is a process that they go through to decide how much they're going to spend. Um, and what I'll tell you is that, you know, I looked into this, I've written about it. Um, most foundations spending policies kind of rely much more on math um, and on um, factors like investment returns than they do on mission and on what their grantees need and what the opportunities for transformation are in the moment. And that has to change. And I will just offer up as an example, um, when we changed our spending policy and we centered our mission and we centered needs in the field, we went from spending in the 5% to now a commitment to pay out 10% of our endowment every year for the next four years, right? And that, you know, the players around the boardroom didn't change, but our process changed and our process centered justice and centered the change that is possible if we can resource this. So look at your spending policy, change your spending policy. 5% is not enough in this moment. It's not, it's not, you know, we can do better. Can I ask you all to talk a little bit about what you think in relationship to donor advised funds? And um, this is our kind of wrap up question here. But this question comes from Becky Pa, who um, says donor advised funds are primarily tax shelters that are perceived as philanthropy, but in which donors often white and wealthy maintain power over their gift. Can you talk about what you think about this? I agree with the opinion of the person who wrote the question. Yeah. Oh. No, I mean, yeah. I, I also think that there's a way in which uh, the institution that's that hold, we like make a, um, an arbitrary separation of the donor advised funds and the institutions who get to bank that money on their uh and on their ledgers right so it's not only that the donor uh and the donor advised fund is a problem it's that there are a ton of foundations who are profiting off of holding this money 
a ton of community foundations, if we want to be super specific, who profit uh, from not giving out this money, who on their website talk about justice, equity, and freedom, and in their practice uh, have not been given out the money. How did you said something, Alicia, a couple minutes ago that um, we who don't fund like we want to win? Uh, and I think that there's a, um, yeah, Becky, Becky said it. <laughs> well, and I think you also have to think about when those dollars are not taxed, who loses? It's, it's not, it's not just as simple as they're being sheltered. They're kept under, um, a certain kind of very specific type of control we have to think about our government infrastructure, all of these different pieces that really starve opportunity from the very same communities who have carried a grinding burden of poverty. And so it's, it's not just about the philanthropy piece, it's this whole other side that we as a sector are very uncomfortable talking about. Well, it's a whole, that on your point, Nicole, I feel like that is actually a much bigger conversation we need to have in philanthropy, which is kind of some narrative shift around who do these resources belong to, mm -hmm. right? Where, where, where does this money come from and whose is it? And who should, who should decide, who should have control, yeah. right? And that is a conversation that I feel like is both emerging, but there's a huge amount of discomfort around it. I want to have that next conversation with all of you. <laughs> well, this is just the beginning and um, we do have to wrap up now, but in our last second together, I'm wondering if you can offer an action word for folks who are watching this conversation, who are wondering, where do I start? <laughs> where do I start? This feels big, but we all know that mountains, sometimes the way to start is just to put one foot in front of the other. So um, if each of you could give like one to three words about where folks should start um, and what step they can take moving forward. And I'm going to start with Dimple. So the rules of philanthropy are ours to create. Okay, Nicole? The people are beautiful already. Mm. And Carmen. We have to organize to build power. Mm. Facts. 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 And philanthropy is no exception. I want to thank you all for joining this conversation. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you, Carmen. Thank you, Dimple. Um, we need to keep going here. So definitely follow these leaders on the socials all over, um, but keep this conversation going. We've started it here, but certainly um, as we approach uh, one of the most important turning points in a generation in this country, it's critical that we don't stop this conversation here. Thank you for joining us and have a great rest of your week. <laughs>